This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. A quick note before we start the show. This episode was recorded before Lou Anna Simon stepped down as president of Michigan State University. There's a difference between reporting and coverage. And the reporting has been phenomenal. It's the way we cover it, like how often and sort of the force with which it gets covered and the way people respond. And we just haven't had a lot of that. And I I really do think it's because it's not football. Like it's not a thing people care. Like gymnastics is a thing that people care very deeply about for one week every four years. Um, And then they sort of forget about it. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we speak to journalist Jessica Luther, the author of Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape, about the USGA, about Michigan State, about Larry Nasser, and about the culture of cover-up and corruption when it comes to sexual assault and college athletics. Also, we got a special Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Awards. I'm very happy to do those this week, as you will hear what they are. A Colin Kaepernick watch that speaks about his playing future and so much more. But first, Jessica Luther. So Jessica, just to kick it off here, your own work has been about college football in particular and men's college sports in terms of the politics of sexual assault. But do you see continuity between people like uh, like Erica Kinman at Florida State who pressed her accusations against Jameis Winston in the face of all kinds of uh, threats and whistleblowers at Baylor and the Me Too movement? I mean, do you see continuity there or do you see this recent era of scandal and sexual assault as belonging to a different era? No, I mean, it all feels very similar to me. I think one of the things that's really been apparent, especially through the Nasser case, but as you said, Me Too or any of the cases I work on, is just how hard someone has to push, not only to be believed, but to actually get action um, in response to whatever it is that they've reported. And I mean, that's one of the things when you when you look at what didn't happen at Michigan State that's so upsetting is the amount of of girls, of young women who had reported to the school and they just weren't believed. Um, that's the language the schools adopted. Like they didn't do anything because they didn't believe anybody. Uh, and I feel like that is, that, that's a huge point of continuity in all of this. Do you think if we're in this Me Too movement before, I mean, cases ranging from Ben Roethlisberger uh, mm-hmm. to Jameis Winston to Baylor, I mean, do you think that the reaction is different? Do you think it's I mean, I I kind of feel like if we're in this moment and those same stories break out, maybe there's a little more justice gets wrested from those cases as opposed to to what we saw. What do you think? Or do you think the sports world is particularly uh, resolute in their inability to accept this cultural shift? I don't know. Sports feels different to me. Right. And I feel like we're always talking about it this way. Like it feels different even within sort of sports media. Right. Like there's been 
not so much reckoning within sports media with sexual harassment where we've seen it in a lot of other spaces. And, you know, the same people, the, the, the stories that we tell and how we tell them are controlled by those people. So I don't know, there's something about sports where, I don't know, it, it seems different. The, the institutional aspects of it, the way that people identify very deeply with it and also turn to it as a, as a means of escape. And it's not like Hollywood, which people do that there too, but these are like the actual people, right? Like we have all these, you know, discussions about like separating the art from the artist and, and all that sort of stuff. But like, we're talking about the actual people that we are rooting for mm -hmm. on the field. And it just, it seems more difficult, um, in, in these spaces. I don't know what, if it would be different. That's actually a really good question. I'm not sure if it would be. I mean, there have been the positive things like the, the immediate firings at the NFL network. And you might have heard about the situation in the WWE where, um, where a wrestler who was accused named Enzo Amore, um, he was let go immediately when the accusations oh, okay. came forward. Um, okay. Partly because he lied to them about what had taken place. So they were like, and they put out a statement that we have zero tolerance uh, for sexual assault. And they did that. But, but those institutions are flexible you know like a network is flexible bam you're mm -hmm. fired the wwe is run by one family when you think about something like michigan state it feels like the in institutionally there's so many mm -hmm. layers you have to push through just to be heard and those layers those institutional layers to me seem very very calcified yeah and very protective i think like one of the things is this trustee who's out from michigan state who's out there saying all the wrong things yeah joel ferguson yeah. And one of his points is you know, that he said repeatedly on that radio interview is that Nasser was an island. Right. Yeah. And I think you're right. Like it's calcified and also functions as this protection that they can say, well, they didn't know. You know, it's like, well, he's by himself. That's one of the things that these programs often do is like that's the one person who perpetrated this. And that's sort of where the buck stops. And we don't need to investigate any farther than that. Um, you know, and sort of you and I and people like us, our refrain is like, no, there's always more. There's enablers. And uh, this isn't just this one person. And I think that's really clear in NASA now, especially that we've heard from, what, 155, 56 of these women. Um, and so, yeah, I do, like, you You are pushing through layers. And then as you get through one, the, they can then say, well, I'm protected from that other one, right? Like, they, they function as silos a lot. That was a word that came up with Baylor. Like, you had all these different silos, and no one's talking to each other, and therefore they don't have liability because mm. um, they don't know anything. And so I, I do think it it's all problematically set up, I would say. I have another compare and contrast question to ask you. Um, comparing what's happened at Michigan State with what happened at Penn State. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me, and I just want to hear if you agree, disagree, or, or any further thoughts you have, it just seems to me that at Penn State, there was much more quickness to be like, all right, who do we have to fire? Who needs to be prosecuted? Partially because they're trying to like save the village, save Penn State football, save it from going down in flames because it's so valuable financially, ideologically, in terms of identity for the school. But at Michigan State, it's like it's just like the Board of Trustees, uh, Luana Simon, I mean, it just seems like they, they all just want to go along, get along, and move on. And there's not that kind of instant response against the institution that we saw happen so immediately and ferociously at Penn State. 
do you do you see that difference or or oh, what, yeah. how do you tease that out um i think that what nasser has done is shown us that what happened at Penn State or even a place like Baylor or even a smaller case like Minnesota where the coach got fired last year um, or I guess two years ago now, those cases aren't about the victims and it's not about safety and it's not about mitigating harm or ending sexual abuse. Um, that it really is about like we care when the institution that's threatened by these things coming forward when we care about that institution in particular for some reason. And I think Michigan State, the people that are sort of shrugging it off are reading that too, and they, they're not concerned. And I, what we've seen in the last week when there's been a huge national response to this case, unlike this case has received at all um, before with with the Nasser case is a lot of change, right? Very quickly. Like the USAG, the gymnastics, uh, they hung on for a long time saying they weren't going to do anything. Then suddenly they canceled their Caroli Ranch uh, contract. They are resigning off the board. You know, there's been pushes from the faculty and the students at Michigan State to get rid of the president. Um, there's, it's just been, you know, that the sort of stuff we saw at Penn State immediately is kind of happening now, even though it's still not the same level. And I think that really has more to do with sort of like threat to institution rather than sort of student safety and our care for victims, which I think is really sad. I think that's a bit of really sad unmasking that we've seen. Right. And, and the, the difference is, as, as you just uh, alluded to, is that in Penn State, it came ferociously from above. And with this, it's like you have to have, you shouldn't have to have students protesting in East Lansing, yeah. you shouldn't have to have faculty signing this letter. I mean, it, it's that's not how it should work if they really were about making a difference. Yeah, and Ferguson, one of the other things he said was this thing about how Simon is good because she brings in money, mm-hmm. right? Like just that Nasser case, there's other stuff going on, and that's that she brings in a lot of money. Um, and it's just really revealing as to like what higher ed is and, and what they care about. He mentioned the Michigan State basketball team having huge crowds, you know, like it's clear what it is they care about. And, you know, there were protests at Penn State. Uh, it was just they were yeah. protesting anyone being mad that Joe Paterno would be held at all accountable um, for his role there. So, yeah, it's it's been sad on some. I mean, it's all these cases are always sad, but certainly the difference with which as a society, we've responded to the Nasser news versus when it is a football story is sad to see. I mean, there's a reason, Dave, that I write on college footballs because that's where people are willing to have this conversation. Uh, that's when editors are willing to publish my stuff and, and people will talk to me about it um, because that's the thing they care about. It, it's, you know, before this last week, it was much harder to get stuff out there about Nasser because as we know, the local reporting um, in Michigan, the Indy Star um, and the Lansing State Journal, like or Star Journal, um, there was a bunch of really solid reporting happening on this case from the jump. It's just whether or not it entered the national consciousness and you were talking about it on Facebook with your friends really shifted in the last week. Speaking of the media, like I just given the enormity of this scandal, I have been pretty appalled by how muted the coverage has been, especially if we want to compare it to Penn State or mm-hmm. Baylor. What is your analysis for why it was so muted? Yeah, it's funny. I've been saying that too, and people are really mad at me for saying that. <laughs> well, I saw that. It's like someone does a Google search and says, aha, you're wrong, when as, as if that's how you answer reporting. these questions. 
Yeah. And it was interesting. So on my podcast, Burn It All Down, we talked about this this last weekend. And Lindsay Gibbs, who's a reporter at Think Progress, and she's been covering this really well for a long time. The way she put it that was so smart is that like, there's a difference between reporting and coverage. And the reporting has been phenomenal. It's the way we cover it, like how often and sort of the force with which it gets covered and the way people respond. And we just haven't had a lot of that. And I I really do think it's because it's not football. Like it's not a thing people care. Like gymnastics is a thing that people care very deeply about for one week every four years. And then they sort of forget about it and and it goes on. And, you know, it does matter to me that this was a, a lot of girls and, you know, there's, there's a gendered aspect to how, how much we care about girls in general, um, that certainly must be playing in here. But I, I do think it comes down to what gets threatened when these things come out and whether or not we care about the thing that's threatened when these things come out. And that really does play into, you know, the media is a business. They put out the stuff they think will make them money. Um, will people care about this gymnastic story? Probably not. You know, I, I feel like those kind of calculations happen. Yeah, I, I think what you just said about the expendability of young girls mm-hmm. is something that rings very true here. And it's difficult for me when I was thinking about the story to not think of things like the disappearances of women in Juarez, the disappearances of of Native women in Canada, mm-hmm. uh, First Nations women in Canada, and how difficult it was in those communities to get people to even notice. And I mean that that's what that's what rang so sharply to me. Well, even with the Me Too coverage, right? Um, so much of it sort of it makes sense that it started in Hollywood. It mattered that in that very first article that the New York Times ran that Ashley Judd put her name in it. That was important to other big time actresses who actually put their names to it. And we all care because we can identify. And, you know, in the New York Times, to their credit, has continued to do phenomenal Me Too work, including that great piece about the women who work at the Ford plants outside right. of Chicago. Um, and I saw that one more than I normally would. Um, but like in the last few years, there was amazing work done on like women who clean the, during the night in, in office buildings and like mm-hmm. the sexual abuse that they face um, because of their precarious positioning. You know, it's there's certain people that we care more about and certainly that's gendered, that's racialized, that's classist, like they're, all those things are playing into it. And, in, you know, in, in the Nasser case, I mean, we should say like, I don't believe the Sandusky brouhaha was about those boys that he harmed. Right. Um, but it could have still played some role in whether or not people found that important. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just the numbers with Nasser, like just there's so many girls um, and we still don't care. And I just, it's hard for me not to separate or not to think of um, gender as one aspect of why that is. Now, speaking of media, we're talking to you right now after you just made an appearance on ESPN's Outside the Lines. Um, I'd love for you to put on your, your media critic hat for a moment, having just been inside the worldwide leader and how they're discussing it. How did you feel like the issue was framed on that show and how perhaps would you have done it differently if you were executive producer? Oh, that's a good question. I actually think OTL in general is pretty good on this stuff. I mean, they had an amazing investigative feature last week um, that I thought they did a really good job with. Yep. Shout out John Barr, who did great work. Yeah. On that. And it really brought out the way that the abusive nature of the sport in general with the way coaches treat the athletes, 
um, played hand in hand with <laughs> what was going on with NASA. And I just thought that was a really smart um, and important framing. And on today's program, I mean, I think that they've actually done a really good job. They had Allie Reisman on last week, and she was brilliant, as she always is. Um, and they today in particular, there was a lot of, and I think this is probably because there's a lot of video, but a lot of victims' voices in the show. Sometimes I'm on there, and my only goal is to mention the victims in the case that I'm on there to talk about, uh, just to make sure that they get mentioned specifically. Uh, so that's, you know, that's one part of it is that often even at a space like OTL, which I think does way better than most sports places, um, the victims themselves, you know, we'll talk around them a lot instead of about them, you know, but I think overall with ESPN, I said something, I had a tweet, I guess like a week ago where, and you know, this should be the lead story on ESPN sports center. And maybe it is today, but it probably should have been like a year ago. Uh, there were plenty of moments where this, where, you know, the sort of flagship programs that we think about, on the flagship station for sports should have, um, taken a bigger lead and, and pushing the story and, and showing that people should care, should have, you know, sort of lead them there if they're not going to get there themselves. As, as we start to, to wrap up here, I, I want to ask you about the issue of, of punishment and justice and how that should exist in this context. Uh, as we do this interview, the news just came down that they're basically going to bury Larry Nasser under the prison Good, good riddance, what have you. But okay. as we're talking about, this is an institutional issue. Like at Penn State, it was institutional, not just the actions of one person and that allowed these crimes to continue. I mean, they, they were still sending women to uh, Larry Nasser for, I believe God. it was 18 months, knowing he was under investigation. And, and so, so the, the, the question I have for you is, what does justice look like in a case like this? Oh, I think that's the hardest question to answer. So thanks for asking. Um, <laughs> no, you know, it, I think the victims sort of should get the first say here on on what justice can look like. I think it's more what does accountability look like maybe is more sort of a tangible thing that we can put our finger on. And, you know, a lot of these people, it's not it is the people at the top. They still have jobs, but like apparently a lot of the trainers who were directly reported to about this and worked literally alongside NASA are still there. You know, so part of it is cleaning house uh, with the actual people who enabled him, but they got, they need better policies. Like they, uh, Kate Fagan said this great thing actually on, on outside the lines last week about how so many of these institutions, they're so much more worried about looking or protecting themselves rather than the athletes that it's always about like, don't, don't tell anybody about this thing because you'll hurt the, you know, the institution itself. And, and you should care more about that. And she said this thing about like creating policies where you start to get rid of that. Like these places need to figure that out if they actually care about safety and they have to have transparency about it moving forward. I think people are, you know, that's often a huge frustration is um, it's finally time to change stuff, but it's not even clear who's changing it, how are they changing it, why they're changing it, what the outcome of that is supposed to be. I don't, you know, it's, whether or not those people should face criminal um, charges for their enabling, I don't know. I think that's all, that's a really difficult conversation. A lot of the times, and I think this is always important to say when I talk to sexual assault survivors or read stuff about this, a lot of the time they just want someone to believe them and then do something to change it so no one gets harmed moving forward. Mm. Like that is so much of why they come forward and they tell their stories. They want to be believed and they want it to stop. And I think moving towards those two things is, you know, that's more like what justice 
probably looks like. Mm. God, you just made my mind flash to the frustration of some of the people who have uh, accused Donald Trump of sexual assault and mm-hmm. the insistence of this administration, the most powerful person in the world, calling it fake news. Yeah. And how that invalidates the trauma that this person put them through. Yeah. I mean, that can't be writ more large than that about the harm that that does, like, like just right. that quest to be believed. Right. And that's such a, it seems basic on some level, just believe them. And then from there move, you know, make the changes so that it won't happen again, that them coming forward, like that those women, I hope they all got something for themselves out of what they did over the last week. Um, but part of why I'm sure a lot of them did it is so that this doesn't happen again. And like, I feel like the least we can do is work towards that for them. What they showed us all over the last week was, I mean, that amount of bravery is stunning. And we owe them at least a little bit of change in the face of that. Great friend of the show, uh, three-time gold medalist, Nancy Hogshead, uh, Makar. Yeah. Um, she, what she is calling for, and I just want your opinion about this because I'm a very mixed mind about this. She's calling for um, a congressional inquiry into the International Olympic Committee saying that the way um, USAG is set up is the same way all of these institutions are set up. And she describes them as, um, in an article I'm doing, she gave me a quote as, I believe, a, a pedophile's playground because mm-hmm. of the absence of oversight. Now, I, I, I go so back and forth in my head, and I have for as long as I've been writing about this, about the role of Congress in sports. But yeah. at the same time, I totally hear where she's coming from in, in wanting uh, some sort of like legal, basically, legislative change to how these places operate. Uh, what, what's your take on that? Oh, gosh. Uh, I mean, I'm with you. Like, I think these are the moments where it's really hard to say. Like, mm-hmm. This is where I want to be like, I'm a journalist, Dave. Um, yeah. Not an advocate. Right. Um, I, I also see it. I mean, Maddie Larson, I think she was the one, right, who mentioned this, like that she was shocked to find out that there isn't like mandatory reporting. Right. U.S. gymnast Maddie Larson for my audience out there. Yeah. That, you know, the thing that Nancy's working towards that doesn't already exist, that that is not uh, she would just assume that her safety was already paramount in those ways and whether or not like the federal government should be involved. I mean, it is the U.S. Olympic Committee, I guess. So. Um, who are they responsible to? I think these are all difficult questions. And how do I feel about that? I'm not, I'm not sure. Like sometimes mandatory reporting is great and it forces people to do the right thing. And then when they don't, there is like a, you know, you can hold them accountable to the thing they didn't do. Um, it's not a perfect system. Often the people who are reported to are the people that the victim already trusts and that tends to be women, um, women of color, especially. Um, and so then they have the extra burden of then it is their job to mandatory report whether or not they want to, um, or, or if it's appropriate for the case. So, you know, it like there's back and forth around that issue. Um, but the idea that there isn't anything in place, that they haven't created their own mechanisms for this, that they need Congress to come in and do it in order to make this a thing, I think really speaks to how little they've cared about it. And I i mean, I love Nancy. I think she's great and she's so smart and she's got a great legal mind. Yeah. She's easily the smartest person in any room she's in. So it makes it yeah. hard to like it immediately made me doubt my own belief that I don't want Paul Ryan overseeing legislative changes right. in USA Jeanette. But at the same time, it's like if something could be pushed 
that's a good thing. Well, Jessica Luther, you, you've been so terrific on this. Are there, is there anything else you want to add? Any lessons from all of this that you want our listeners to know? I don't think so. I think we covered so much of it. I also think we should play Maddie Larson's words. Coming here today was no easy feat for me. I didn't know if I'd be able to do it, but I realized that I'm not the little girl I used to be. I have a voice now and it needs to be heard. All I wanted to do as a kid was go to the Olympics. I was at the height of my career at 19 and the Olympics were just one year away and I just couldn't take any more of the abuse. I was broken. Larry, my coaches and USA Gymnastics turned the sport I fell in love with as a kid into my personal living hell. The first time I distinctly remember Larry abusing me was at my first U.S. National Championships in Minnesota. I was 14 and ended up not being able to compete because of an extremely painful hip injury. My coaches still insisted that I travel, telling me I was going to compete no matter what. I ended up barely being able to lift my foot off the ground a few days later. A teammate of mine from my club back in Los Angeles was competing there as well. So my coaches were in the training gym with her every day while I was getting treatment from Larry during each practice in a separate room. My injury was very close to my pelvic bone. So when Larry put his fingers in my vagina for the first time, I innocently thought it was some sort of internal treatment for that specific injury. Almost each and every time I received treatment from Larry from that moment on, he would molest me. This went on until I left the national team to compete for UCLA at 19 years old. I simply cannot even get myself to consider you as a real doctor. Your priority should have been my health, yet your priority was solely to molest me. In the midst of all these adults who I was scared of, Larry, you were the only one I trusted. In the end, you turned out to be the scariest monster of all. The complete detachment from the outside world on top of careless and neglectful adults made the ranch the perfect environment for abusers and molesters to thrive. But thanks to the women who have spoken here, that horrible place has been closed. Last March, I traveled to Washington, D.C. and met with Senator Dianne Feinstein to tell her my story, along with some of my fellow survivors. I then attended the hearing by the Senate Judiciary Committee, which led to the introduction of legislation to require Olympic governing bodies, including USAG, to immediately report sex abuse allegations to local or federal law enforcement agencies. I was shocked to learn that this law did not already exist. Your Honor, I stand behind my former teammates and survivors who have asked you to give Larry the maximum possible sentence. No accolade or award is worth enduring abuse. There is another way, a healthy and supportive way to make champions. Thank you. And I want to say this loudly because I did not say this in my intro to you, but I love the Burn It Down pod. I, I listened to the recent one about um, South Korea and the Olympics twice. Oh, for an article Thanks. I'm doing, and it's an absolutely terrific podcast, and everybody out there should subscribe to it. Thank you. We enjoy doing it. You can, and you can tell, and that's partly what makes it so good. <laughs> um, good. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. It's good to talk to you. It's great to talk to you. 
This week's show, like every week, is brought to you by The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. The issues that they have put out in 2018 are absolutely remarkable. In the latest ones, they talk about immigration and how immigrants are organizing to resist what are, frankly, the Gestapo tactics of ICE and the uh, deporting of activists who are standing up to Trump's anti-immigrant agenda, which is so rooted in racism as opposed to immigration policy. Also, coverage of the Women's March. Hey, the mainstream media barely covered the fact that over 2 million people were out there in the streets a couple weekends back, but the nation covered it. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please don't forget that when you subscribe to The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. And now... Back to the show. And now I've got some choice words about my least favorite team in sports, the New England Patriots. It's called the progressive case for the New England Patriots, and yes, I am serious. Okay, look, setting aside football franchises that are named after racial slurs, the New England Patriots are, again, my least favorite team in sports. It's their annual dominance, you know, eight Super Bowl appearances in 17 years. It's their Hall of Fame head coach, the joyless hooded gnome, Bill Belichick. It's their 40-year-old dreamboat quarterback, Tom Brady, and his TB12 carnival huckster approach to physical health. Remember, for $99.99, you too can get the Brady pajamas with bioceramic particles woven in to reflect back to the body infrared waves. It's the way referees seem to love them just a little bit too much for comfort. The list is long, and I know I'm not alone in my disgust. But many have taken our resentment against this team and politicized it, saying in effect that a cheer for the Patriots is a cheer for the Trump agenda. And I'm going to call that out as poppycock. The Patriots are viewed as Team Trump. Let's give them the evidence first. Because their owner, Bob Kraft, gave a million bucks to Trump's inauguration committee and has long touted their friendship. It's because Belichick wrote a letter of support to Trump that Trump read on election night. It's the Make America Great Again hat hanging in Tom Brady's locker in the summer of 2016. And Brady asking with a big whine, why is that such a big deal? For people defending this franchise against these Team Trump charges... It also hasn't helped that Nazi leaders have said that the Pats are their favorites because they are, and this is a quote, consistently the NFL's whitest team. By the way, that's not actually true, but facts have never stopped Nazis before. Yet I want to make the counterargument to this. First and foremost, the idea that a team is somehow progressive or reactionary is absurd. Teams are products to be sold, not political totems. Again, with the exception of teams named after racial slurs. There are historical exceptions to this, but they're rare. For example, when the Brooklyn Dodgers with Jackie Robinson won, it mattered because it smashed a hole through the pervasive, everyday white supremacy of the time. If Jackie Robinson had failed, the effect would have been horrific for the black athlete. The same was true with the Celtics, when led by player coach Bill Russell, or in 1989 when Art Shell of the Raiders was hired as the first black head coach in the NFL since the 1920s. Similarly, in 2016, rooting for the 49ers when Colin Kaepernick was throwing for 16 TDs and just four picks while also protesting police violence, 3-2-1, while also protesting police violence amidst a maelstrom of death threats. That mattered. But again, these are rare occurrences in team sports history. Most teams instead are a mess of political contradictions. 
Yes, Bob Kraft is a bankroller of Trump, but he's hardly alone in NFL ownership ranks or among the billionaire class in this country. Yes, he's also a dear friend of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, donating millions to build an Israeli football stadium in Jerusalem. Again, these actions are hardly exceptional, as the NFL broadly has tried to foster a relationship with Netanyahu for years, and no amount of human rights violations have deterred them. Yes, their coach wrote Trump a mash letter, but he's also done some unheralded work with black youth over the years, and at least unlike then-Bills coach Rex Ryan, it's not like he was introducing Trump at rallies. As for the team, we would do well to remember last April when an unprecedented number of Patriot players skipped the White House visit for explicitly political reasons. As defensive captain Devin McCourty said, Basic reason for me is I don't feel accepted in the White House, with the president having so many strong opinions and prejudices. Tom Brady also didn't show up to that White House visit, allegedly because of his mother's illness. But it stung Trump's ego enough that he didn't even mention the quarterback's name during his speech. These were hardly the actions of quote-unquote Team Trump. Instead, they were a gob of spit in his eye. Then this past year, when Trump called for players protesting racism during the anthem to be fired and cursed their names, a dozen patriots kneeled, even through boos that came down from the stands. And again, these boos were hardly exceptional in NFL stadiums. Even Bob Kraft said he was deeply disappointed by the president's speech and he supported the players' efforts to peacefully affect social change. Those words may sound tepid, but given their friendship, they were volcanic at the time, showing that Trump, at least publicly, was not going to break the NFL. Outside of all things Trump, the Patriots last year became the first NFL team to co-sponsor an LGBT sports tournament, a flag football tourney called the Gay Bowl. As Sid Ziegler of OutSports has written, The Patriots have been one of the most LGBT-inclusive NFL teams, even signing an amicus brief several years ago in support of same-sex marriage. It's worth asking Kraft how he could financially support a president whose record on LGBT rights is monstrous. But that doesn't change the fact that the team has stood strongly with the LGBT community in a sport historically hostile to LGBT athletes. These contradictions on the team mirror New England's a place that was a beacon of the abolitionist movement against slavery and a cradle of progressivism, yet also the home of the busing riots and a racism that runs red with blood throughout its history. Yet it has to be noted that every state in New England voted against Trump in 2016. In addition, when his alt-right Nazi shock troops rallied in Boston, the response was epic, the most overwhelming counter-demo we've seen, and you got to assume there was a Patriots fan or two in that crowd. The point is that while many on social media will say that a victory for the Patriots is also a victory for Trump and those Nazis who love him, it's also a victory for Devin McCourty. It's a victory for a part of the country that just put thousands of people in the streets for the Women's March 2018 from Cambridge, Massachusetts to Bangor, Maine. It's a victory for LGBT youth who have benefited from the team's outfront solidarity. Look, I cannot stand this team, and writing this was like passing a kidney stone. But putting a political gloss on why they are so repellent is unnecessary. Hate them for their arrogance, resent them for their success, but politically, they are as good and awful as any franchise in the hyper-corporatized athletic industrial complex. That's in many ways the toughest thing to face. The Patriots are just like our own favorite teams, only better. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up. 
and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to a couple of different folks, and they're both Super Bowl-related. First and foremost to Chris Long of the Philadelphia Eagles. He was recently interviewed in one of the pre-Super Bowl scrums, and he went out of his way to speak about uh, himself and Malcolm Jenkins, two very politically active players during this past season. People might know the iconic photo of Malcolm Jenkins raising his fist every week and Chris Long standing there with his hand on his shoulder. And Chris Long, out front, not being asked, he just said, the fact that we've made this Super Bowl is a vindication uh, for anybody who says that you can't be political and also have team success or that it's divisive and you can't have team success. I just love the fact that Chris Long was so out front with that and spreading that message. And yes, um, I will have uh, some sort of column next week about the progressive case for the Philadelphia Eagles. Make no mistake about that. Chris Long also challenged the National Football League to sell these shirts that you might see of Philadelphia Eagles with a dog on them. I'm not sure what that symbolized, the dog face. It's like the purge with less violence, as Chris Long put it. But he challenged the NFL to, when they sell these shirts, to give all the proceeds to charity, the same way that Chris Long has given every game check this year to charity. And the NFL said they would do that. So I just love the idea of players pressuring this multi-billion dollar athletic industrial complex to actually give something back to the communities that they've taken so much from. And speaking of which, the other Just Stand Up Award goes to local Minnesota activists who are resisting the Super Bowl. That was the subject of an episode of the Edge of Sports podcast the week before last. We interviewed local activists from the Black Lives Matter movement and from the Latino labor movement. People should listen to that from a couple weeks ago. Go to edgesportspodcast.com. But the fact that that resistance is now in full swing and they are using the Super Bowl as a place to speak about issues like police brutality, like immigration rights, like gentrification, I mean, it's what you have to do because the entire spotlight is on the Twin Cities and it's a place for them to be heard. But also when the Super Bowl comes to town, it means more police. It means more closed circuit TV cameras. It's basically the prom for the 1%. And the fact that they are speaking up and speaking out is something very important, very special. And it's something that I think will be remembered long after these games are done, both in the Twin Cities and beyond. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award is an absolute no-brainer. Of course, the sports world is talking about what we discussed with Jessica Luther earlier in the show, Larry Nasser, U.S. Gymnastics, and the serial sexual assault that took place under the auspices of Michigan State University. There's been a huge call for Luana Simon to step down as the president of Michigan State University, given that they oversaw this, given that they even had people see Larry Nasser for treatment when he was under investigation for, I believe, 18 months and chose to do nothing. Well, Joel Ferguson, who was on the board of trustees at Michigan State, this is what he said about the last board of trustees meeting that they had. He said, quote, the meeting we had the other day was five hours, talking about Luana and her future was 10 minutes. We unanimously decided in that meeting right away that we were going to support her staying as president. There are so many more things going on at the university than just this Nasser thing. 
When you go to the basketball game, you walk into the new Breslin. That's the new basketball arena. And the person who hustled and got all those major donors to give money was Luana Simon. There's just so many things that make up being a president at a university that keeps everything moving and everything right with the deans, everything at a school where we have a waiting list of people of students who want to come, end quote. I mean, I'm about to vomit just reading that. Basically, what Joel Ferguson is saying is that Luana Simon's job is safe because she brings in money from donors and it does not matter how many people were abused under her leadership. This is unbelievable to me. Like, imagine everything that happened at Penn State. Imagine if the people who ran that university had said that Joe Paterno would never be fired because of all the amazing money he brings into the school. People would have been shocked and appalled at that. Imagine if the board of trustees had just said, we don't care about these abused children because, hey, ka-ching, ka-ching. They didn't do that at Penn State. Now take it over here to Michigan State. They are doing that. And to me... That just says so much about the esteem to which football is held on the NCAA landscape and the disrespect that's given to these young athletes, primarily female athletes, um, at Michigan State. And I got to say something about this because this is about money. So at Penn State, I believe they were trying to protect the football team. They were trying to protect the football program and therefore the need to clean it up as soon as possible and tried to do their best to whitewash what had taken place. Serial abuse of children became so important because you had to basically save the golden goose. In this case, the casual disrespect is precisely because, as they basically say, as Joel Ferguson says, Luana brings in money and these gymnasts did not. And therefore, we do not care. That's repellent. Joel Ferguson, sit your ass down and hopefully get your ass thrown off those board of trustees. Yo, we are starting a Patreon page. All you got to do is go to www.patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod where you can become someone who helps keep this podcast going. We've got different categories by which you can give to help us keep on doing the work that we're doing. Look, I never thought I would need a Patreon page, but the fact of the matter is this. That intersection of sports and politics has just exploded in the last year, and we want to do more. We want to take the show on the road. We want to make more merch. We want to do more stuff. And to do that, we need your help. And depending on how much you give, uh, we're going to be giving something back. I mean, whether it is a signed book I've written, whether it is a bi-monthly mailbag, whether it is a t-shirt... All of these things are available, and we're doing it because we want to support the continuance of this podcast. Look, this podcast will always be free. You don't got to give anything, but if you appreciate the content we give, please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. And now, back to the podcast. And now it's time for the show that we call Kaepernick Watch, about the latest comings and goings with Colin Kaepernick. This week, we have the social and we have the sporting for Colin Kaepernick. Let's start with the sporting, just because I find it interesting. A very interesting rumor reported by Mike Freeman of Bleacher Report that because the Oakland soon-to-be Las Vegas Raiders violated the Rooney Rule in signing John Gruden to that $100 million contract, in other words, they did not... Uh, interview any coaches of color at all. They just sign him right away. It's got a lot of people very upset. 
uh, the way they handled things, particularly because the Oakland Raiders franchise under Al Davis, as I spoke earlier, was the first team to hire a black coach in Art Shell. They were also the first team to hire a Latino coach in Tom Flores, who won two Super Bowls for them. They hired Amy Trask, the first woman to ever be uh, the head up in NFL franchise. So, you know, the Raiders really are associated with being this trailblazer. And to have Mark Davis, Al Davis's idiot son, uh, just spit in the eye of the Rooney rule has upset a lot of people. So there's a strong rumor that to make up for that, they're going to sign Kaepernick to be the backup of Derek Carr. Now, that has a lot of advantages, not the least of which is that the Bay Area absolutely loves Kaepernick and he'll be back in the Bay. And him in that Raiders uniform just be beyond badass. Now, the flip side to that is I'm wondering if Kaepernick would do it given Derek Carr, quite frankly. Um, Derek Carr just had a terrible season, but he is ensconced as the franchise quarterback. I know for a fact that Colin Kaepernick wants to go to a place where he can play, and it's difficult to know whether the Oakland Raiders would be that kind of place. But when it comes to location, location, collocation, my goodness. I mean, Colin Kaepernick and Marshawn Lynch in the same backfield, I mean, I would, I would plots with pleasure. Uh, now, on the political social tip, a couple things about Colin Kaepernick. One, you're going to hear by the time this podcast is up that he did another Know Your Rights camp, uh, this time in New Orleans. That's top secret as of as I'm telling you this, but it's going to be people are going to know about it after this weekend, and that's fantastic. Uh, the other thing that people need to know about uh, because it's a huge deal is that this project of Kaepernick's to give away $1 million and his effort to get celebrities to match his donations took a big step forward this week as donations came in from Serena Williams, Snoop Dogg, and T.I. And with more to come. Now what Colin Kaepernick is doing, this is why I think it's so important, is that he is literally training a new generation of celebrities to bridge the worlds of philanthropy and activism. If you look at the groups that are being supported uh, by these initiatives, like Mothers Against Police Brutality, this isn't your typical NFL foundation stuff. This is helping grassroots organization doing the grassroots work. Well, that's all for this week's Edge of Sports podcast. If you like the show, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, your podcast app of choice. Leave a rating, leave a note. All of that makes a huge difference in the algorithms that I do not understand. Thank you to my co-producers, Dan Baker, back in the saddle again, and David Tigabu. Thank you to Jessica Luther for coming on the show. If you want to listen to back episodes, you can always go to edgeofsportspodcast.com. And speaking of back episodes, I'm so proud of the one we did last week with Aaron Mabin, uh, who was an NFL player who became an art teacher in Baltimore schools. You really want to listen to that. Go to edgeofsportspodcast.com. If you want to reach me, Dave Zirin, you can at edgeofsports. And also, don't forget, you can always email me if you have your own suggestions for just stand up or just sit down at edgeofsports at gmail.com. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.